You're listening to Nitty Gritty Nursing with Nurse M, where she breaks down the nitty gritty basics of nursing concepts. Okay, so something new that I'm going to do for this particular podcast is I'm going to do series. And for example, this one is called the Anemia Series, which means that I've taken the really short tracks and podcast episodes that I've made, and I'm going to combine it into one long one so that people don't have to go on the hunt. If, for example, you just want to focus on the all the anemias that I've covered up until this point when this uh, podcast episode is being published, they will all be inside of this one, so you don't have to go on the hunt. And I will do the same thing for some of the other disease processes that I talk about, like the endocrine system. There's a lot of things that come from the pituitary, and I'm going to put them all in one sequence so that if you decide you'd like a longer podcast that covers more material, that is available to you. If that's not your jam, there are the shorter episodes that are available that you can go through and pick and do it that way. So with that, I'll just let the episode start itself. Hello and welcome back to Nitty Gritty Nursing with Nurse M. Today I'm going to talk about anemias, which is basically just a condition where the blood is lacking enough healthy red blood cells, or specifically hemoglobin. And for anemias, the most common cause of someone having anemia is either they have acute blood loss, um, or they have some sort of faulty red blood cell production, or their red blood cells are being destroyed. So either they don't have enough blood, their red blood cells are messed up to begin with, or their red blood cells are not being made correctly. Those are the three big reasons why people would have anemia. Now, there are several different types of anemia, with the main types being related to acute and chronic blood loss, uh, which can happen from cancers or immunodeficiency syndromes or liver diseases or autoimmune conditions. There's also anemias that can be caused by specific nutritional deficiencies, such as a lack of iron, a lack of folate or B12 deficiency. There are hereditary anemias like sickle cell anemia and thalassemia. So realistically, anyone who has anemia, the focus of the treatment is on the condition that is causing the anemia to begin with. So it's going to vary based on that specific type of anemia. And that's really pivotal in understanding just the nitty gritty basics of how we would approach treating anemias in nursing with these types of patients. So to begin with, let's start with the easiest type of anemia, and that's going to be blood loss anemia, which is basically just characterized by too much blood being on the outside of the body when it should be in the inside of the body. So if you don't have enough blood circulating on the inside of your body, not only are you going to have a whole host of other problems, but again, you just don't have enough red blood cells to transport oxygen. No red blood cells means decreased oxygen circulation, which means a decreased perfusion, which leads to anemia. You see kind of where this is going. Now, from an acute and chronic perspective, acute blood loss is going to result from like trauma of patients, right? Or someone who's in a motor vehicle accident, someone who was bitten by a shark and has like an amputation. Your chronic blood loss is going to be from like a slow GI bleed or cancer, even uh, females who are menstruating. So that is what causes blood loss anemia. It's literally the easiest anemia to understand. There's just too much of the red stuff on the outside of the body when it should be on the inside of the body. But realistically, like, what does that look like in your patient? Well, because they don't have enough red blood cells, which the hemoglobin attaches to the oxygen molecule and is responsible for transporting that, these patients are fatigued. They also are going to be pale or have some pallor. Um, uh, the red blood cells is what really brings a normal skin color to these individuals. And even those with darker skin complexion, while they not may not 
and pale like a sheet of paper, you're still going to see it in their mucous membranes. Mucous membranes should be nice and pink. Those will be pale. They're going to be short of breath. Again, they don't have the oxygen carrying capacity. They might have chest pain. They might be tachycardia. And that's because the heart is trying to compensate for the lack of blood circulating in their system. They might be hypotensive. And they might have cool extremities because the body tries to compensate by doing a peripheral vasoconstriction and funneling the blood that they do have remaining in their system back to the essential organs. So how do we intervene with these patients? Again, it's going to depend on the root cause of the anemia. If it's a traumatic blood loss anemia, well, we're going to give them blood products and maybe some sort of medication to increase their red blood cell production. If it's a chronic blood loss, we're going to identify the issue and probably try to fix it. Like if they have a GI bleed, we'll start to give them the medications that would stop the GI also from bleeding. And then give them medications like a hemopoietin to increase the red blood cell production. So, you know, in a nutshell with blood loss anemia, really, we just need to control and address the source of the bleeding, whether that's chronic or acute. Both of them, we have to figure out where they're bleeding from and stop it. Acute, more serious because they're going to die faster. And then basically just replace the blood loss that they've had and give them the blood products so that they can re- have restored circulating volume of essential components that are needed to transport oxygen and CO2 throughout the body. So that is blood loss anemia. Now let's talk about iron deficiency anemia. And iron deficiency anemia is just when we have low iron levels. And there's three main causes for that. Either these patients have really poor intake, they've got some sort of absorption problem, or they're losing iron, like from blood loss or menstruation or like an ulcer or a hemorrhoid. If it's because of poor intake, usually the reasons why people have poor intake of iron, oftentimes it's during, it can be, during pregnancy, when there's an increase in fetal demand. And those patients who don't have enough iron or have some sort of nutritional deficiency, you'll also hear the term pika, where patients are eating non-food substantial things, but items that have like a lot of minerals in them, like dirt. And you'll frequently see that with iron deficiencies or mineral deficiencies. Uh, poor diets and malnourished, that goes to stand that the person's just not eating enough or in consuming enough iron in their diet. And then vegetarians, and that's primarily because they're not consuming iron via uh, red meats, for example, or meats from an animal that uh, use red blood cells as well. Absorption problems will be specific to like intestinal surgeries or like a gastric bypass. Maybe they've had some of their small bowel removed because the small intestine plays a huge role in iron absorption. So these are three main, three primary causes of specifically iron deficiency anemia, poor intake, absorption problems, or they're losing iron from blood loss. And individuals that have iron deficiency anemia specifically, right, they're going to have the signs and symptoms. If you just think, low iron, they're going to be lethargic. They will be overexerted really easily with that shortness of breath. Again, they don't have the uh, hemoglobin in the iron circulating to transport oxygen, get rid of the CO2. They're also going to have weird food cravings like the ice and clay and dirt, pica. They'll have a really pale face. Um, They're also likely to have inflammation of the tongue and increased heart rate. They'll have reduced hemoglobin levels. And then you'll see these changes in the red blood cells because they don't have the iron to do their job. And then they can also actually have nail changes. 
uh, as a result of that, their fingernails will actually become spoon shaped and then they can have neurological changes again because it's, they're not transporting the essential molecules needed. And so the brain is not going to get the oxygen that they need to work effectively. So for these patients, we know that their presentation is they're going to be pale in nature. They're going to have that weakness in the fatigue. They'll have low hemoglobin and hematocrit and their uh, red blood cells are going to be microcytic and hypochromic, which is just a fancy way of saying small red blood cells and without the nice chrome looking appearance to them. So what do we do for these people? What are the interventions that we need to take in order to help them feel better. Well, we need to increase their oral intake of iron and instruct them on food choices that are really high in iron. Those are going to be things like dark green vegetables, dried fruits, uh, even egg yolk, legumes, meat products, uh, liver products, things like that that contain high levels of iron. And then we're going to administer iron supplements as prescribed. And there's a few different variations to iron supplements. They can get intramuscular injections of iron um, or they can get IV administration of iron, which can be prescribed in severe cases of anemia. Um, if they are going to take oral supplements of iron, especially the liquid version, uh, it's really important that one of the uh, ed- educational components that we provide is that that liquid iron can actually stain the teeth. And so we really want to teach them that it should be taken through a straw and that the after they have taken the liquid oral iron, that they really need to then brush their teeth after the administration so that they don't get the discoloration on their teeth. In terms of when they should just take like an oral iron tablet, they need to be taking that between meals for maximum absorption. We know that iron is best absorbed on an empty stomach, but it's really hard on the empty stomach. So if they can also take it with some sort of fruit juice, vitamin C will increase the absorption of the iron. And we don't want them to take it with milk or antacids because those will decrease the absorption. Uh, and then if they're taking a lot of uh, iron supplements, we need to educate them on the side effects of that. And that's going to be like black stools and constipation, and it might have a foul aftertaste. So these are just considerations for the interventions that we were going to do for someone who's got low iron deficiency. Now, how do we evaluate that? It's going to, we can do blood tests again and make sure that their levels are coming back up and they should just start to feel better. So any of those symptoms that they were having, like weakness and fatigue, or, you know, if they were really pale, those should eventually correct themselves. So that's your iron deficiency anemia. Now your vitamin B12 deficiency anemia results from inadequate intake of vitamin B12 or lack of absorption of ingested B12 from the intestinal tract. And B12 deficiency anemia comes not only with either A, you're just not taking in enough, but B, you can also get pernicious anemia, which is specific to B12 because it's just a deficiency of intrinsic factor that's normally secreted by the gastric mucosa that helps with the absorption. And if you don't have intrinsic factor, you're not going to absorb B12 even if you're consuming a lot of it. People at risk for getting this disorder specifically pernicious anemia, for example, and just vitamin B12 deficiency in general, are those with autoimmune issues, individuals who follow follow a vegan lifestyle just because they're not eating a lot of any animal product, which is where a lot of dietary B12 is located. Some people have genetic links to it, and then the elderly are also at risk for this because they just have decreased acid production, which means they also have decreased intrinsic factor, and they're just not going to absorb as much. Those are just a few of the people 
that are at risk for it. Now, because we know what it's caused by, what do these people look like? Again, it's an anemia. And what you'll find is all of the anemias basically have very similar signs and symptoms because of the root cause, which is just not enough red blood cells circulating and not transporting the essential nutrients. So again, the presentation of these patients, what they're going to look like is they're, again, going to be have that pallor. They're going to be pale. They're going to have fatigue weight loss. There are, however, some very specific signs and symptoms as it relates to B12 deficiency that you should probably be aware of. And those are that because vitamin B12 is really good for the nervous system, specifically because it helps in regard to myelin synthesis, nerve metabolism, and neuronal regeneration, when we don't have enough vitamin B12 in our system, we then will end up with paresthesia of the hands and feet because the nerves are affected. The other big thing is that they will associate, especially in your tests, B12 deficiency or like a pernicious anemia, again, it's just a B12 issue, um, with a red, beefy, swollen tongue that is sometimes often described as smooth in nature. And the reason why patients with a B12 deficiency get this red, beefy tongue is because uh, when there is a lack of vitamin B12, it can actually present itself as like a glossitis, a megaloblastic anemia glossitis. And so the appearance of the tongue in vitamin B12 deficiency is described as that beefy or fiery red um, kind of characteristic. This type of anemia does happen over time and is very gradual in nature, so it's not caught super early on. But again, these are just things to watch for. So how do we intervene with it? Well, the entire goal of this particular anemia is to replace vitamin B12 in the body because either A, they're not eating enough of it already and they need to be educated on foods to be drawn to in order to increase the consumption of B12 dietarily, or they can't get it from the food because they don't have the intrinsic factor in order to help absorb it. So what we can do for them is if we're going to help them increase their dietary intake, they need to include those foods that are rich in B12, like citrus fruits, dried beans, Again, green leafy vegetables, liver, nuts, um, all of the organ meats, and even brewer's yeast, if that's um, the direct result from a dietary deficiency. If it's because they don't have the intrinsic factor to help absorb it, then what they're going to need is they're going to need to have vitamin B12 injections that are given weekly initially. And then once they're given weekly and the, the levels get back up, then it can be extended to monthly for maintenance. And the people without the intrinsic factor, the key thing here is they're going to need to get B12 injections for the rest of their life because they're not going to be able to absorb B12. So if at any point they ever decide to stop taking B12 injections, they will then go back into a vitamin B12 deficiency anemia. And so they really need clear education on that. And in addition to that, if we think about safety elements, because we know the B12 has such a play with the nervous system and affecting the ability with paresthesia, like they get the numbness and the tingling in their hands and feet, safety is going to be like, we really need to caution these individuals, especially the elderly, with their gait and walking around and having really good oral hygiene because we know that they're going to get that red beefy tongue. And so we want to make sure that they maintain those sorts of things in their life. Okay, now onto the hereditary-based anemias, which I'm going to cover sickle cell anemia and hemophilia, and I'm going to first start with sickle cell anemia which is a genetically carried trait and or disease process that is resultant of the parents carrying and passing with a sickle cell trait onto their offspring and 
what this is, is if you think about sickle cell, the hemoglobin, we've got um, four points of hemoglobin in a red blood cell. Well, part of the hemoglobin A is either partly or completely replaced by an abnormal sickle hemoglobin S. Why that matters, it's just for those that are curious, you don't really need to boil down to that point. But if you understand the pathology behind it, it makes understanding the process of sickle cell anemia significantly more easier because sickle cell anemia is abnormal hemoglobin on the red blood cell. And to wrap your brain around it, right, the red blood cells that people who have sickle cell disease, they are round and shaped normally, except for when they're stressed out. And then that hemoglobin S causes it to sickle and look like not a nice round red blood cell, but kind of a partial C. And those then cause vasoocclusive crises, which is why sickle cell anemia is associated with so much pain. Now, these are in individuals who have the sickle cell disease, so they've got the two recessive traits and they're not just a carrier. That's very different. Um, the population by which we see this predominantly in are African Americans. So about one in 12 individuals who are of African American descent will carry the sickle cell trait, not necessarily disease process. And the reasoning behind that was because it was found that um, individuals that carry the sickle cell trait were protected against um, malaria. So in geographical regions where malaria is endemic, there is a higher prevalence of individuals carrying the sickle cell trait. Um, but because higher prevalence of people carrying the sickle cell trait, if you put two individuals together that both carry the trait and you draw out a Punnett square, you have a 25% chance that your offspring will have the two recessive genes um, or traits and will then carry the sickle cell disease process. I think in order to appropriately describe this, we also need to keep in mind that the normal lifespan of a red blood cell is typically 120 days. Well, individuals who have the sickle cell disease who actually carry the disease process and not just the trait, because it's a recessive trait, you have to have two in order to have the full-blown disease. What happens is basically their cells might be round and normal, but then when they are stressed out, they can enter into a sickle cell crisis. And those red blood cells that have the hemoglobin S, the sickled hemoglobin, will convert the cell from its nice round shape into the sickled shape. And it can do this back and forth, back and forth. So when we catch patients early on who have a sickle cell crisis going on and we can reverse what the original cause was, those sickled cells can reverse under those conditions when there's adequate oxygenation and hydration. We'll get into that after a little bit. But if those cells are repeatedly sickling and then reverting back to its nice round shape and then sickling again, eventually they will, be after repeated cycles of becoming sickled in shape, they will become permanently sickled which causes these vasoocclusive crises and anemia. Because the sickled cells cannot adequately carry oxygen, and it just doesn't do its job properly, which is why they become anemic because the cells are not doing its job. Now, the way that we test for sickle cell disease and whether or not someone has it or is a carrier is we will use this in screening purposes. We use this test called sickle dex, which is a sickle tubidity test. And it's frequently used just because it's a finger stick and it yields really high accurate results in about three minutes time. But the caveat with this is that it's just testing for the sickled hemoglobin S. So if it comes 
comes back positive, an additional blood test actually has to be sent off to confirm whether or not the person is just a carrier of the trait or if they actually have the full-blown disease process. Now, let's say that we're taking care of someone who actually has sickle cell disease. Um, Here are some factors that are have the potential to precipitate this person to going into a sickle cell crisis, which is the big problem because it's a vaso-occlusive crisis and it's basically all of these clots or lack of blood flow forming all over the body, which affects all the organs. So factors that we need to take into consideration is if there's been some sort of significant blood loss like surgery, because it, the blood loss leads to less oxygen transportation and you will find that a hypoxic state or lack of oxygen is a precipitator to triggering the cells to go from the round shape to the sickled shape. Now, if they've had some sort of infection or illness, that can also precipitate it because the spleen is having to, um, has the problems with the sickled cells trying to filter them out. And because those sickled cells then stick together, blood flow can be diminished to the spleen and cause a sickle cell crisis. Now, if people are climbing or flying in high altitudes, again, that high altitude increases is the body's demand for oxygen and high altitudes just don't have the same percentage of oxygen as like sea level environments do. And so because of that increase in oxygen demand that the body experiences at high altitudes, um, that can precipitate it. Now, um, keeping stress like either mental or physical stress can also alter the way that the body uses oxygen and, and can precipitate a sickle cell crisis in addition to really low fluid intake. So dehydration decreases the volume, stresses the body out and can trigger it as well as temperature changes. So elevated temperature increases the body's demand for oxygen. And similarly, in really cold situations, extreme temperature shifts will increase oxygen demand from the tissues. And so these people that have sickle cell disease, like they should not be doing a polar plunge jump. They should not be going into the ocean because those extreme shifts in temperature where the cells then require an increase in oxygen consumption can stimulate and trigger a sickle cell crisis from starting. And it's not always possible to know what sets off a crisis, but the primary triggers, right, include dehydration, temperature shifts, infection, stress, and the big one is really low oxygen intake. For example, the uh, most memorable patient I took care of in the emergency room who had a sickle cell crisis was an African-American truck driver who was traveling over some of the mountainous passes in the United States. So he had a stressful job. He was not drinking enough fluids because then he'd have to pull over at a rest stop or, you know, whatever the rationale was. And he was changing altitudes, often going up and over mountainous passes, but mountains are also really cold. So then there was also this temperature shift. So that I took care of an individual truck driver came down a mountainous pass and it triggered a sickle cell crisis. And we had to admit him for pain control and to try to reverse the sickle cell crisis so that we didn't cause further damage. So these patients that have sickle cell disease that end up in a sickle cell crisis, the way that they present, this is the P 
in the pie, right, <clears throat> is they're going to have tissue ischemia. They'll have infarction at the cellular level. They're going to have a lot of pain and that will be their primary symptom. They're going to have tenderness and swelling, especially if it's sickled in a joint, for example. They might have a fever. They'll become tachypnic and tachycardic because they're trying to compensate, A, for the lack of hypoxic cells, right? They're trying to get more oxygen circulating um, and they're trying to accommodate with the pain. They might be nauseated and they might have vomiting. You could potentially even see jaundice because as those red cells break down, um, you know, it's potential is that the liver may not be able to properly break it down and get rid of those damaged red blood cells. Shock is also possible in these patients due to that oxygen depletion and that reduced circulating um, fluid volume. And these sickle cell crises happen suddenly and they all happen suddenly and then they can last for days or weeks. And what we can see often is that infection is a frequent complication of this. Again, because every system is affected. So really like the goal, like our intervention for people who have sickle cell crisis is to alleviate the symptoms from that complication of the disease. And by doing that, we really want to minimize end organ damage. So you, we promptly treat this um, to prevent the serious sequelae from occurring. And so it's hydration, 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 oxygen, get them the oxygen, get them an IV, get them IV hydration. Um, they need rest and pain management. We have to address these key things uh, because those are precipitators of it. So when people are dehydrated, right? So we need to rehydrate them when they become hypoxic. So we need to give them oxygen and replace electrolytes if they're also, you know, needing that because they haven't been adequately hydrating. Give them the pain medication because this is an incredibly painful process. Um, and then Welcome to Fuller Butts, a behind-the-scenes plastic surgery podcast. Yes, you heard that right. Join your co-hosts, Dr. Sam Fuller and Dr. Dan Butts, board-certified plastic and reconstructive surgeons on an exclusive full-access pass into the world of plastic surgery. Combining their expertise and training, Drs. Fuller and Butts will share medical insights, detailed explanations, and lighthearted humor to keep you entertained and informed. We're certain you'll become passionate about the plastic surgery specialty and between debunking myths, uncovering truths, or just making you laugh out loud at their perspective on this creative and artistic field. We've got something for everyone. give them antibiotics if we think that there's an infection brewing and we really just want to monitor for signs of complications like increasing anemia, decreased perfusion, and, and that shock that's going to be a big one. And ultimately, the way that we evaluate whether or not what we've done in our intervention, this is the E of the pie, whether or not it's worked, is if they've got good pain control, if they're hydrated adequately, if they're no longer hypoxic, uh, it's going to take them a hot minute to reestablish red blood cell supply, especially if some of their red blood cells became permanently sickled from too many sickling occurrences. So these are considerations that we need to take into consideration. In terms of education, we really want to educate these patients that they need to stay appropriately hydrated and then avoid things that could potentially lead to a hypoxic state like 
extreme changes in elevation suddenly or strenuous exercise, um, even emotional stress and those big temperature shifts, um, even from high temperature to low temperature, from low temperature to high temperature, anything that would increase the metabolic and activity and the oxygen demand of the cells, we want to try to educate them how to avoid that so that we don't precipitate a potential sickle cell crisis from occurring. All right, now let's talk about hemophilia. And hemophilia is a bleeding disorder that results from a deficiency of specific coagulation proteins. And the most common types are factor eight deficiency, which is hemophilia A, and factor nine deficiency, which is hemophilia B. And it's an X-linked recessive disorder. And the cause of the deficiency is in a clotting factor in a clotting factor, not platelets. It's not a platelet problem. It's a clotting factor problem. And so individuals who have hemophilia, whether it's hemophilia A or hemophilia B, the bleeding tendencies are going to range from mild to severe. And so it's really going to depend. Um, What we can do is we can do lab work and what we would see is an elevation in their uh, coagulation studies like you know, the APTT, the activated partial thromboplastin time. And we can also then see a decrease in the factor that they're deficient in, whether that's, you know, eight or nine, for example. Platelet count and PT and INR will not be affected because this is not a platelet problem. This is a factor problem. So individuals that have hemophilia, some of the signs and symptoms that they're likely to experience are going to be excessive bleeding and bruising everywhere. So if they knock their hand on something or their their knee on something, they don't have the factor in which to add it appropriately clot, clot off the internal bleeding or the micro bleeding in that vasculature. And so depending on where they hit their arm, they if it's on a joint, they're going to have joint pain and they'll have swelling and it'll be warm to the touch and bruising, and they have the potential to develop hemiarthrosis, which is just a really fancy way of saying that they're bleeding into the joint. And because they might bleed into the joint, they'll then also subsequently have decreased range of motion. Most often, um, we will start to see these signs and symptoms of potential hemophilia. If it wasn't screened for, we'll start to see it in um, children around the age of six months. And what that will kind of look like is they'll have bleeding. So, you know, they might get a bloody nose, things like that. Or just really, honestly, any abnormal bleeding in response to some sort of trauma or surgery. Uh, We can even find this in children sometimes after, um, you know, especially males born at birth, um, have had a circumcision, they'll have a really hard time with not bleeding after that. And so this is a childhood illness that we often detect in childhood because kids like to tumble and fall. And as a result, that's where we start to see this excessive bleeding. They bruise really easily. They'll bleed into joints. And so we, our goal is really designed at managing that. And so in terms of the interventions that we do with these children, um, or even adults that have hemophilia, but we just see it, we catch it in childhood. Um, the big thing that we're going to do is <laughs> the number, the main treatment is factor replacement. So you have to give them back. If they fall and hit their head, they're not going to have the factor to stop the bleeding. So the main course of treatment is to give them the concentrate of the clotting factor that they're deficient in, whether that's eight or nine, whatever they're deficient in, we need to give it to them. And then depending on where the 
concern for bleeding is. So for example, if a child has been running out on the playground and has taken a tumble and knocked their knee, we would not only give them the factor replacement, but then we would also encourage the old mantra of rice, which I think at a time was really going out of uh, style, but RICE, R-I-C-E, is rest, ice compression, and elevation to help with the, you know, vasoconstriction and de- decreasing, I guess, the potential for further bleeding. We can also give desmopressin, which is abbreviated as DDA. VP. And this is a man-made hormone that's used to treat people who have mild hemophilia A. So it's only given with hemophilia A. And basically what it does is it stimulates the release of stored factor 8 and von Willenbrand factor to increase the levels of those proteins in the blood. It's usually given by injection or as a nasal spray um, because the effect of this medication wears off if it's used too often. The medication's only given in very specific certain situations. For example, like right before dental work or before playing certain sports to prevent or just reduce bleeding in general. And then in terms of other interventions, other than just replacing the factor that they're deficient in or giving that desmopressin, we're going to do things like monitoring for joint pain. And if it was their knee that they hit, immobilize that area so that there's not continued articulation of vessels that have been damaged, which would increase bleeding to that area. And then you're going to want to assess, you know, neurostatus. If you're worried about some sort of head bleed, look at their urine to make sure that there's no blood in the urine. Um, and then really just teach the child and parents about signs of internal bleeding and the parents need to be taught on how to control bleeding and what to do if something happens because ultimately like this is a deficiency that they'll have for the rest of their life so they need to be able to understand which factor they need in order to stop the bleeding but then ultimately if we can just prevent bleeding from beginning I understand that children run around and that's probably damn near impossible to ask of them however prevention is best. We also want to make sure that they understand that these patients who have hemophilia should not be getting NSAIDs or aspirin um, because they don't need additional, you know, bleeding potential risk on top of already what they've got going on from a genetic standpoint. And then if they're in the hospital, we want to do things like avoid needle injections or IM medications because they're just going to ooze out of that site where we've created trauma or injury from the needle. And we want to, with these children, engage them in physical therapy to really maintain range of motion. So when they get that bleeding into the joint, it can reduce range of motion over the long term if it's just if it's not maintained and so we want to work with these children even into adulthood if they have issues with that they need to do physical therapy in order to maintain it and we encourage them to not play any contact sports so no American football because that would be catastrophic in some circumstances for people who have hemophilia and maybe there are some people out there with hemophilia that do play American football and they play contact sports and they do just fine with it this is going to to be on a case-by-case individual basis. So that is what I know about hemophilia. Both sickle cell disease and hemophilia are kind of very complicated uh, anemias that are genetic and hereditary based. Uh, hopefully that this made it more clear. If it didn't, you know, go back to your resources. Otherwise, go forth and keep on learning.